Good Gabs, sponsored by Skillskin, a nonprofit organization empowering individuals with disabilities through employment. I bet you won't know who we have today. Who is it? It's the grandfather of therapeutic gaming. Can't believe it. It's a great show coming up. Uh, look forward to hearing uh, from Hawk. Hawk, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, we get to hear all about what you're up to, uh, the different organizations that you've put together. Like, tell us more about the RPG Network. Well, thank you yeah. so much for having me here. Uh, so I'm Hawk Robinson, and I'm president and founder of the 501c3 nonprofit research and human services organization, RPG Research, which also has a community center and we're trying to open a museum, and the for-profit RPG Therapeutics, which has a bunch of spinoffs like RPG Education, uh, RPG Publishers, uh, Neuro RPG, things like that. Uh, I was first introduced to role-playing games in 1977 yeah. uh, by a cousin when I was just a kid. And I was a very, a very, very diagnosed ADHD, hyperactive. Yeah. I've always been a high-energy person. And I was into a lot of sports, basketball and soccer. You know, there's always comments about my height. Now I'm down to about 6'7", but I was just shy of 6'9 before. And, uh, and so even as a kid, was athletic, martial arts, yeah. ballet for, well, for a little while. <laughs> but very physical, very kinesthetic learner. <clears throat> and I was introduced to the sit-down tabletop game called Dungeons & Dragons, which, by the way, this is now the 50th anniversary. Really? This year? was Woo. when the first role-playing game was yeah. published. And it's considered an entirely new um, uh, recreational activity. Which there but it's been, been around a, for... Uh, well, it's okay. only been around about 50 years. Which okay, so is that... Games and everything go back centuries yeah. before, since the last time a new one was created as far as there's only like seven or eight major types of games and it was the first time a new one had been invented in centuries. And uh, so anyway, 77, I'm introduced to this, and it was just so different, and it tickled a part of me, my brain and such, that I hadn't really had the uh, interaction with, with the sit-down tabletop dice pencil, socially cooperative narrative game. It was like, so what different. Is this? Yeah, and it's all cooperative, yeah. like all these sports are competitive yeah. and everything else. And they're like, no, you win by continuing to play and having fun and there isn't you're, it, it's a non-zero-sum game I don't have to take away from you for us to have a great time and succeed it's like this is really different and so transformative it, it, it clicked and I started forming little groups at the libraries yeah. and at the game stores and little events and at the park and just you know organize little community groups of this and what city was that that started in Salt Lake okay although I've done this across me personally all over the U.S. and then with my volunteers across all six continents. And we're, anybody at Murdoch Base Station in, in <laughs> Antarctica here. or uh, the International Space Station, we're happy to bring you in. <laughs> but we, we've uh, got about 200 volunteers across six continents. And we're 100% unpaid. You know, everything we do is a labor of love. Uh, at, at our peak, we had about 35 PhD or PhD candidates on our research side. And then we've had all these other volunteers. Wow. Now, most of our volunteers are involved in the program design and delivery side of putting together cooperative music and role-playing game programs. So we've had programs in West Africa and South America and Pakistan and China and all over. And over time figured out the little cultural tweaks that were necessary. Yeah. But what we did find is that it worked across cultures. You just had to tweak the story. The mechanics, the idea, the benefits, 
universal, it turns out. Nobody could answer that 20 years ago. That's interesting because we're human, huh? Yeah, yeah imagine yeah. that. <laughs> but the culture, yeah, yeah. the story. So cool. jumping back, yeah. introduced to it at 77. Yeah. 79, I also got into computer tech. And you know, I was nine years old hanging out with 18-year-olds at college. <laughs> and um, they, they let me have access to the University of Utah mainframes and what would become the internet. Back then, it was uh, ARPANET. Through they DARPA. were brave. Uh, uh, I, I was already picking up the computer stuff very quickly. So I started programming in 79 and experimenting with how to optimize the role-playing game experience to get the most out of it in the limited time. And then also wrote my first electronic role-playing game. So first there's tabletop, and there's electronic, and that's anything that needs electricity. And then there's live action, which is like, you know, people running around sure. in costumes or no costumes or whatever, but it's physically moving. That's live action role-playing gaming or LARP. And then like we hybrids. might see at Manitou Park sometimes yes, in exactly. the summer. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. with uh, uh, Amped Guard and such there. Okay. Exactly. And then in 82, I had my first paid, pro, paid programming gig at about 12 years old. <laughs> it was writing. What'd in, you make? It was an inventory and point-of-sale uh, rental tracking software for a video rental store right back in the VHS Betamax nice. days for a little mom-and-pop shop. Yeah. And it was my first paid programming gig, 12 years old. I bet that it was, was like, felt so good. Oh, yes. Yeah, 600 yeah. bucks. It was a lot for a kid then. Yeah. It was great. And then... Around the same time, I started researching because it was the beginning of the anti-gaming movement, the anti, the whole uh, moral panic, satanic panic of the 1980s and early 90s, yeah. and role-playing games that. got pulled into that. Yeah. So there was starting to be a backlash, and up to that point, you saw this weird new thing called Dungeons and Dragons come out, and my experience of it was it was actually very mixed and diverse. I, it was about 50-50 male-female, you know, I, even though I was in Utah, which was, you know, predominantly very white. The game tables were pretty well mixed. Um, and then when I was in California and everywhere, where it was much more diverse, same experience. Once the anti-gaming media stuff started, it started to change. Hmm. What the experience was like changed. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. So if you look, there's photos of these gaming groups starting at schools. And, you know, there'll be 12 kids in the next year, 50 kids. And then you have some like 300 kids out in front of the school, this after-school program, by like 83 to 85. Then you watch like 86, 87, 88, they, and by 89, they were banned, right? There had been a big movement to ban them. They're still banned at most prisons. And so 83... Dang, it I, seems like it'd be so therapeutic. Well, that's the, that's the thing. So back then, the claims yeah. were, uh, thanks to Patricia Polina, bothered about Dungeons & Dragons, and uh, Dr. Thomas Redecki, who's now in prison <laughs> from the National Council on Television mm -hmm. Violence, they kept slate claiming role-playing games cause... Uh, homicide, suicide, antisocial behavior, uh, all these things. And there was no research. So that's when in 83... It's just opinion. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it, it was a very personal thing. For, I mean, to her, I'm very sympathetic to Patricia Pauline. Her son committed suicide. And she was looking for a, an explanation for such a horrible thing. Yeah. And when you have that level of passion and pain, you're, you're going to find something and if you lock onto it. And so unfortunately, if you have a lot of power well she didn't she to was that. a grassroots she was very good at organizing that they were in front of congress they were going to try to get it banned at all government anyway so all these negative claims are being made and so i started researching around 82 83 about well what's the effects role playing i'm hearing these things my mom's looking at her like we don't see what you're talking about and there was no research and the first book came out about 83 about kind of the experience of it but no real research and so I wrote my first eight-page essay on it uh, when I was at Realms of Inquiry, which is a, a school for gifted and talented children in Utah. Really remarkable place. You're out rappelling off the side of the school building, out on survival trips, all these really Fun. great en enhanced learning experiences. And they're still going strong. 
And uh, then in 85, they lost their drama teacher and I got a chance to teach role-playing gaming five days a week as a class for last period. You could either go to study hall or Hawk's role-playing game class. <laughs> that was the first time Dream I started using true. it in education. Yeah, and, and it was remarkable. And did everybody become lifelong gamers? No, but it eliminated all the stigma that had been developing. And that was my first experience of using an educational study. I had to create a curricula and everything else and have measurable goals, all of that. Yeah. Fast forward to 89, I used it in an incarcerated population setting, working with uh, uh, prisoners who literally are from rival gangs. Like the week before, two gang members or two groups had been in a fight and the prison, the jail was on lockdown. And I had 12 of these people at the table from together cooperatively playing, yeah. setting aside all their issues. There were two white supremacists, there were a couple from the Latino gang, there were a couple from a black gang, there were a couple of Vietnamese, all at the same table together, playing cooperatively without any issues. And that cell, because that cell was the only one that didn't have problems during their lockdown after the fight, because the whole place was on lockdown after the fight. It was the only cell that didn't have any incidents. Yeah, so like data starting to It's starting to, to accumulate, exactly. So then I got into nursing yeah. for a little while, and one of my first patients, and it'll tie in with this, was uh, had complete locked-in state or locked-in syndrome. Uh, that means can't interact with the world. They're not brain dead. You can tell from the brain scans they're fully aware but could not control his eye movement, tongue, couldn't do sit puff controls. He was about my age, 19, 20 years old. He'd had a skiing accident somewhere at the sea level, the brain, you know, the stem had snapped and he couldn't interact. So he was on a gelatinous bed. I was a nurse's aide training as an LPN and taking care of it. And I was like, this is hell. Yeah. I wouldn't want this. And there was no way to interact with him. He couldn't do hand squeeze, blink, anything. So what do you put on the TV or the radio? How do you yeah. communicate with this person? And it really bothered me. But the technology wasn't there yet to create a way to interact. Fast forward through a lot of things. I was a mechanic and a professional photographer and all these other things. I finally focused fully on tech. You're a curious person, aren't Very, you? Very, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was always doing tech. I was always the techie guy. I, was, I taught at the American Automotive Institute, all these other things. But I wanted, I had my first kid on the way and I wanted a really good income for my kids. So I was like, all right, playtime's over, let's focus. I really focused on tech, rapidly worked my way up to becoming uh, chief information officer, chief technology officer of different companies and providing for my kids. And then did the whole siliconvalley.com thing. I was CTO for a company that got bought out by Barnes & Noble. We did the whole ebook thing back in the early 2000s. And uh, then used that money to spin up just a little. And I didn't get like tons of money, but it was enough yeah. to, to, do, to be able to spin up some projects. Did some wireless ISP for rural to bring broadband to places that don't have any broadband. As a rural person, thank you. Yeah, solar and wind-powered <laughs> self-contained towers, right, so they can stand on their own. Um, but I also got into, I opened the computer schools, and I started getting these kids who the parents come to me like, my kid's struggling with computer class or typing class, could you help? And I'm like, well, not a therapist, I, I'll do what I can. And I used games like they needed to pass typing class. So that's how I did typing. There were some games. So I took them to a website. They played games. And I did what I now know is known as a token economy, yeah. where I said, well, for every C you get in class or better, you'll get a piece of computer part because they wanted they were taking the computers part. Wanting, you know, so whatever you could do to reward and reinforce the desired behavior. And so I was looking at child psychology, but all my psychology friends were like, Hawk. <laughs> There's a lot of paperwork. For every hour, 45 minutes you get to spend with the client, you have to do an hour of paperwork. We know you. <laughs> That's good. Not, you're not going to like that. Look at alternative therapies. And so I looked around. Nice. And got good into, advice. Yes. Thank goodness. Yeah. So I got into uh, recreation and music uh, therapy for the most part. And that's part of why I moved to Spokane because they had such a great program here. I am a musician. I play over 20 instruments. I'm under the alias of Synthetic Zen. Yeah. Got about 200 pieces out there. And um, 
so and I couldn't decide between music therapy and rec therapy. Well, it turns out their modalities are identical, so they work out together. So where's this intersection of, of disability then? Well, well, it started with <laughs> the nursing. Yeah. With the nursing aid. Um, and, you know, with, between my ADHD and I have dysgraphia and dyscalculia and things like that, and I was around a lot of people, my gaming groups had people with disabilities, right? They, these were activities that people with physical disabilities could do because they were social and they didn't require great physical acumen to participate and have a great time and be social. So I just, it was around me all the time. And so in 04, all the textbooks in, in rec therapy said, there's a lack of cooperative, intrinsically motivating activities. Everything's competitive or solo. Mm -hmm. How do you keep them engaged if it's not that way, especially in Western culture? It's like, well, we're all playing games. And I'm looking through all the literature and all the literature. Nothing. Nobody had done any research. Now, outside of rec therapy, there was a therapist here and a psychiatrist here. And there were about maybe 50 case studies and very minimal studies through all those decades mostly disproving all the negatives of the 80s. Like, does it commit homicide? Yeah. Research turns out that no, role-playing gamers actually have a lower rate of violence and criminality than the general population. Huh. Oh. <laughs> does it cause suicide? No, the suicide rate of role-playing role gamers is one-fifth to one-twentieth that of the normal, regular population. Huh. Does it cause antisocial behavior and meaninglessness, and which was some of the claims? No, it turns out that if you look at college students, which are the most widely studied population, 47% scored high on meaninglessness. The gamers, only 17% scored high on that. What did they attribute all this huh. to? Well, nobody knew. Yeah. And it could, it, part of it could be self-selection, which I suspect, it, you know, it's nature-nurture mix. Or community. Well, that's all part of it. You get that community support. So it's a nature-nurture mix, says like so many things. Part of it is people who are adept at communication, social skills, cooperative, narrative, problem solving, all the things that are part of role-playing gaming would be drawn to the activity once they're exposed to it. And people with those skills, problem solving, community, you know, a network, all of that, those are all the things that help lower those negative aspects of antisocial suicide, et cetera. If you have a community network and you're a problem solver, you're less likely to commit suicide yeah, or it's a happier outlets. life. Exactly. So that's part of it, is there's a pre-selection. But it was hurt by all the negative press. People were like, oh, only freaks, geeks, and weirdos do role-playing games. I'm staying away. And, and I saw it change. And I saw it all over the country. It completely changed, and it became a global phenomenon. Um, so there was resistance, but there were people who selected. And then you did get people who, went, uh, who identified as a freak, geek, loser, et cetera, who went, oh, really? There's something where I can belong? And they were attracted to that. So you did end up with this sudden growth in that area. Well, these are people who actually really need help. Sure. And it turns out this can help with. So that all kind of happened there. But then there, it turns out that it isn't all just self-selection, right? Because that's the danger of correlation versus causality. We have, but there wasn't good causal data. There were a couple of case studies of like somebody who was suicidal, the, the therapist used it and went, well, it turned it around. But no good studies. So my goal starting in 2004 and forming RPGresearch.com, the website, was aggregate all the available research, try to find and or if I have to create the better research data and the causal and get causal information and share all of it openly. I'm a big open yeah. source advocate and want it all out there freely. So that's where 2004 RPG Research launched. And in the process as a recreational therapist, I was, you know, working at summer camps and everything, and we work constantly with people with disabilities. Right. Um, so I have partnerships with Muscular Dystrophy Association, St. Luke's Rehab and the Brain Injury Department, Spinal Cord Injury Department. These are all places I've worked at and done programs at. And uh, so that rapidly grew. And 
I was sharing this. So what happened is like 2012, other people started to pay attention to this. Up until then, I was Yeah, out. you're showing it. Like, well, I was, this helps. It was a whole new industry, right? Yeah. And I was also talking about role-playing game professional services. The publishing industry had been around since 74, but professional services, I'd been a paid professional game master since 83. People paid me to GM them. I was 13 years old. All my, GM, all my students were, or my players were all college level on up but they paid me to GM. I actually got paid okay. as a professional game master. So there's this whole new concept of role-playing game professional services. Whole new wacky thing. And in, in 2004 to 2012, I was outstanding in a field all my own, as opposed to outstanding in a field all his own, right? But I, I started speaking at conventions. I got out from behind the curtain, because I always like to be a facilitator behind the scenes rather than out front. But everybody started going, is this a scam? What is this thing? How could this be going on? And so I had to put myself out there. I have an information security background that is anathema to everything to do with information security. And uh, so I started getting out there speaking, and that got people excited, and they started reading my papers from 2004 and 7 and such, listing the potentials. And whole pe people have gone off to go get their PhDs because of this topic. I've got people yeah. moving here to become rec therapists from Florida and Massachusetts and California to get into this because what the data is now showing 20 years later since RPG research is there is a causal effect. Yeah, we can actually We can help actually feel. measure it. I've created tools in, and, and used other assessment tools that can do a baseline. You do the program, and we generally can break them into 90-day segments and then show measurable results. Have you started to work in the area of intellectual disabilities or oh, developmental absolutely. disabilities? Oh, yeah. What are you finding? So uh, we found that these modalities, and sometimes you need to be adaptive, sure. are highly helpful with a wide range of populations. Yeah. So we've worked as young as two and a half years old nonverbal autism spectrum. Uh, we've worked with senior adults in cognitive decline due to dementia and age, as old as, I think 86 right now is our oldest uh, participant so far. And we see that it, 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 you can, if you compare it to the other groups, so we literally had our program and a bunch of other rec therapists, so it wasn't just rec therapy, it was specific to our modality of role-playing games or our cooperative music drum circles and, and, and open music jams. But we would have these activities that the kids or adults would participate in, and there were other people doing their programs using recreational therapy and other uh, modalities, and ours would get through all the way through the program. So like with autism spectrum, two and a half to five-year-old uh, toddlers, it's really hard to keep them engaged if they're not enjoying it. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so intrinsic yeah. motivation, they got to just love it first. And if they love it, they'll do the hard work, and which gives all kinds of benefits. So ours was the only one with all these other groups, you know, with, with control groups basically, that they finished the whole 15 to 20 minute, 30 minute, whatever the durations were at different times, and to task. So we only had one who she stopped the second to last step of all the activities. Now that's they were, that's and they a were win still getting yeah. that far. And cooperative activities yeah. for nonverbal autism spectrum. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Um, we So we've had, as long as two years old in our drum circles, uh, 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 Down syndrome, et cetera, participating with everybody else because all levels can participate in these. So how, how are people accessing this world here in Spokane? It has been a journey <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out delivery because yeah. the hard part, especially the tabletop version, is it's a bit of a time. It takes time. The sessions, the little kids ones, we can do 20, 40 minutes per session. But the adult versions, teenage on up, requires, we found, about two and a half to three hours per session. That's a commitment. Yeah, right is. Nowadays, everybody's boom, boom, boom. It's hard to get a two to three hour window. 
So we started just doing community programs at community centers and libraries, just like I've been doing for decades. And, but I started now really taking data and observational and we tried specific things. 2010 to 2012, I did a whole bunch of controlled studies on hundreds and hundreds of variables, room temperature, lighting, size of the group, duration, every variable I could think of trying to figure out the optimal experience and, and have shared all that. And it works out to about two and a half to three hours is the sweet spot for the most benefit, the most flow state. Flow state's yeah. great for learning opportunities, immersion, grit development, et cetera. Uh, three to five. It does have to be, that's a consecutive amount of time then. That for yeah. the maximal, yeah. you can get benefits yeah. in smaller amounts. Again, for the younger kids, yeah. it's only 20 to 40 minutes. Sure. With no thank attention. you evil and other games like that, the adventure can be all done in 20, 40 minutes. But with the adaptation we did, because little kids are wiggle bottoms, they're kinesthetic learners. So we've added a little bit of live action to the tabletop experience so they stay engaged and keep the cerebral blood flow going and it helps them. There's just, there's thousands of these little things we've learned over the decades. In 2016 or 18, some people who've been on BBC and elsewhere who, who learned a lot of this uh, from, from me and, and some of their own wonderful ideas, uh, introduced me to some clients that they couldn't handle because they had a very narrow scope and we have broad scope as the grandfather of therapeutic gaming. <laughs> that was not my idea. And at the time, my sons were still like, teenagers. Hello, Huck. No, the grandfather. <laughs> well, I wanted, I was like, no, no, I'm not ready to be a grandfather. Could we say the godfather? Could it be the godfather of therapeutic gaming? Well, that's like, a pretty good moniker. No, but yeah. but no, the grandfather thing stuck. And, but now I am a grandfather. My middle son, they're all, they're all in their 20s now, so now it's okay. You can own it now. Yeah, yeah. when they were teenagers, like, no, don't rush it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, as a single father of three boys, that it was, my hands were full enough. So, um, so that's become the thing now. Now they introduce me about that because apparently, weirdly, I've been studying this longer than anybody else. I've been doing this longer than anybody else as far as we can find. And... Are schools accessing? Oh yeah, you? now yeah, like now you're in Spokane. Yes, uh, we've yeah. we've run programs for Spokane School District. Uh, we've run it for Eagle Peak Alternative School. We've run it for Spokane Valley District. They've loved what we've done. Huge results. Teachers would come in and they kind of we have to shoo them out because they'd see the kids start doing so much better. Uh -huh. And we often get the, it's like, well, we've tried everything else. We've had people from Mayo Clinic and uh, Johns Hopkins and others as clients. So you're just the shiny person of the day. Yeah, but it's like, no, this is <laughs> But they is can't legit. figure it out. They watch yeah. it. They don't understand. Like, I see the behavior change. I see them starting to self-regulate. I see them improving and becoming interested and creative and verbal and... I don't understand it. The teachers are just trying to watch and it is an experiential <laughs> thing. So uh, eventually I, you know, did become a recreational therapist and uh, I'm a Washington State Department of Health registered recreational therapist with a background in neuroscience, education, research psychology, and of course I have my computer tech background. And I'm a, a chief technology officer, fractional CTO, and consultant for a lot of different tech companies. That's kind of how I have to pay the bills. Uh -huh. The RPG stuff has been sometimes paid. I've made 250 an hour sometimes, but it's still a little bit feast and famine. We'll get these huge projects for 20, 30 grand a month, and then nothing for months. And so we have to really meter it out. So I have the small for-profit RPG therapeutics that I incorporated in 2014 as my private practice. And then we have the nonprofit RPG research, which we finally incorporated officially in 2017, even though we were doing it as a nonprofit for decades before. Is that where, you know, the community center that you put together uh, yes. is housed? So what happened was um, when I was at St. Luke's Rehab, we had a lot of trouble getting a space for more than an hour to do the programs with the brain injury and spinal cord injury population. And most of them were in wheelchairs. I said, couldn't we like wheelchair them out to something? And so I need, I need more, like if we're doing a drum circle, we can't do it inside because it's noisy. 
if, and same with the music circles. And with the gaming, we need more than just an hour and everything was in one hour slots. So they got me going. So I researched and researched and it took a couple of years. I finally got an, an RV trailer, a toy hauler. It's normally to transport like motorcycles and sports cars, but it has like a living room in it and bathroom uh -huh. and a kitchen. And so I got the, the world's first role-playing game trailer that's wheelchair accessible. I got it with a ramp, and you could wheel people it. straight I can in. I see it right here. So now, and now I have two yeah. trailers. The first one was vandalized they, when we first bought it. They Dang tore it. all the wiring out of it. So trailers two and three I still have. They're, yeah, you've got pictures on the brochures. Uh, you can see them on the website at rpgresearch.com. And also a bus. We got a bus at one point. I won't get another bus. The insurance for a bus is insane. Okay, no. It costs to sell. more than the bus. Yeah. <laughs> Stick to the trailers. It's way more affordable. <laughs> Hard lesson, right? But we're, when you're bleeding edge, when nobody else has done it, yeah, you, you just gotta yeah. try things. So and by learn. by 2016, I was touring the country on the RPG tour, raising awareness about accessibility and uh, uh, gaming. I had artwork all over the bus and trailer, which drew people sometimes hostile to have conversations about what the heck is this yeah what are you doing that was the whole point like yeah. bring them in i'm ready for them i can I, i've had a lot of people 180 degree turnaround very excited once they get the data the data shows that cooperative social role-playing games and the most benefits with tabletop but you also get some benefits from the live action and some from electronic and the hybrids and then not to mention the whole brain-computer interface RPG, neuro-RPG we've been working on for years, where you can just play the games with your thoughts so people with extreme disabilities can interact in line in a swap, uh, online in a social cooperative experience who can't that's communicate access. otherwise. <laughs> yeah, bcirpg.com is the open-source version, and then I'm trying to spin up neuro-RPG as a, a for-profit to have a more polished easier to use and we got this new headset design and everything that's still like the headsets right now are thirty thousand dollars through uh, openbci.com and they're a nonprofit, right yeah. <laughs> open source we're trying to get ahead of that because they're still big and bulky and we need something more comfortable it looks more like a baseball cap and and sunglasses but the point is you'll be able to just play these online games through your thoughts cooperatively social communicate and we have working prototypes over Incredible. the decades that are getting better and better and then ai and stuff is helping with that so all these different things so i've got the mobile facilities i'm driving all the country I'm, I'm taking programs out to underserved and unserved populations i'm going out to rural areas that are jeep trails in a cabin because they can't <laughs> leave there and yeah. nobody will bring them services and i have four-wheel drive i'll bring the trailer wheel them out and i'll do the programs there and wow. I started That's trying commitment. to get, yeah, and I was trying to get grants, but because I didn't have a headquarters, I had a, I had a shared virtual office that I still have over on Monroe street. Um, just, just up the street here. I couldn't get any grants. They're like, you got to have a place. You got to have a place. You break like, no, these are, my model is mobile. I can do it online. Yeah. I've run programs all over the world online. Cause I have this tech background. Yeah. You know how to do that. Yeah, I do. And we've got this mobile thing uh -huh. that's working great. And my, and all I have to do is pay for the gas and maintenance and it's way cheaper. And I'm getting to people that aren't getting served otherwise. Nobody, I, I, I am really good at ideas and implementing. I am not a good marketer, salesman, fundraiser person. I'm good at getting money for services, for profit. I have learned the hard way. I am not good at fundraising on the nonprofit side. It's hard. It's not my strength. Yeah. And so that's been very challenging. That being said, each year since we incorporated has been better and better for fundraising up until this year. So we were improving each year. We saved multiple world conventions from cancellation, putting them on our platform. Worldcon, Gen Con were going to be canceled because of COVID. I had helped Zombie Orpheus Entertainment and the Fantasy Network. I built their 
media streaming platform from scratch in my living room back in 2016. And then wow. we scaled it. And so then 2020, we modified to handle live events. And we did. And it worked? And it worked. We had 20,000 concurrent users per second in live audio, video chat rooms and everything that were on my servers. And that did not break. That, well, it was because Zoom crashed. We took over for Zoom. Zoom couldn't handle the load and we took over. Wow. And we were working with Zoom on trying to solve their problems. So huge impact, right? <laughs> huge impact. We have never raised more than $50,000 a year. And really, last year was our best year ever. And we've got to 48000 and most of that was from like one do donation, in which was almost, we never gotten a donation like that before. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That was a Dropout TV did that at College Humor. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Dropout nice. TV. Yes. And that gave us the means to get the community center over in East Central Spokane. It was a big risk, but they said, well, if you do that, you can get grants, which so far hasn't panned out, but we're trying. So we opened that up uh, last year, L huge fixer upper, ton of elbow grease, a lot of work, and people loved it. We made it as accessible as we could. It's still, still a lot more to fix up. And that's been great because East Central Spokane really is lacking in, in resources. There's Absolutely. a lot of places just out on the edges of it. We're not in a nice neighborhood, but that's the population we're helping. And so we have, I have pictures of like a kid with severe muscular dystrophy association. You know, he can only do sit puff and can barely yeah. speak at the table with an 86-year-old participant and then a bunch of people in between all playing the games together. And, you know, it's offered freely. We're all volunteers. We're super lean, mean, and efficient, right? We've done this. We've helped more than 100,000 people with extremely low overhead. It doesn't get any lower. And so the impact has been wonderful. Um, so what's your goal this, year? this how, year? How much do you need to raise? Yeah, so this year, unfortunately, the last six months of last year suddenly dried up. And we're By the way, you're not alone. A lot of nonprofits yeah. across the It was on the community. news. Yeah, Creme 2 was just talking about it's it. It's tough. Yeah. So we're, we are now behind on rent which has never happened before. And I personally had to vouch and take on the, the lease agreement because the nonprofit was too small for the landlord to agree to it. So even, so anyway, we're at the verge. If we don't raise 10 grand before February, we're going to lose the place. And I'm still on the hook for another year plus of rent anyway, personally, <laughs> uh, which will be about another uh, $50,000 or so. So, um, so who's, so the, who's the person that should help? Because we have a, a everybody can help. Uh, yeah. audience. We have, we have Patreon if you want early access to essays and videos. Because we do these online shows. We do online gaming. You know, we're, 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 we're out there. Um, you can do it through PayPal. You can, you know, it used to be Amazon, but they pulled their thing. Um, but if you go to rpgresearch.com forward slash donate, there's lots of options. So everybody can donate any amount, and it all helps. It helps yeah. pay the power. It helps, et cetera. We really need like even just one benefactor, fifty grand a year. We're, that's all inclusive. That covers all of our operating costs to help do thousands of programs for thousands of people for fifty grand. I mean, how many programs can say that? I've been to all these not not uh, very many United Way workshops, yeah. and 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 none of them come close. Um, they're proud of helping a thousand people a year for a million dollars a year, and it, it's a whole other scale. So. We just need a little bit more breathing room. We're trying to open up the RPG Museum. We have stuff that nobody else has uh, in role-playing game history. And we have all this, and we've refined it. We have this training program. Our volunteers go through this rigorous training, and now it's becoming a profession, right? There's this whole role-playing game professionals industry that has grown out of this, shockingly. Well, yeah, and we're doing it right here in Spokane. And yes. Hawk, I know, yeah. it's like... There's so much. <laughs> if this through. speaks to you in any way, look up, you know, 
What's your website? RPGresearch.com is for the nonprofit. And you just go forward slash donate or you can go forward slash volunteer if you want to sign as a volunteer. And then if you're looking for professional services, so we have clients that, as I say, Johns Hopkins and others, they had tried everything and they weren't yeah. getting better. They were getting more suicidal. They were deteriorating and they came to us and radical turnaround and improvement. Um, so if you're looking for a more intensive therapeutic program than on the for-profit side and 20% of, of any profits from the for-profit are donated yeah. to the nonprofit, really right now, all the profits are being donated <laughs> nonprofit to try to keep it going. Um, I have about eight employees there, um, most of which are here in Spokane. And then I have one in Massachusetts and one in California. Um, that's RPG Therapeutics at rpg.lc. And so that we do therapy services uh, of a wide range, recreational therapy. We also have professional training and workshops for others who want to get into this. This has gotten yeah. people really excited. Uh, recreational therapy, we know a lot of people who are becoming recreational therapists because we found that teaches you 50% of what you need to know. It teaches you cooperative activities with measurable goals, doing it for a goal and achieving those goals and, and showing proof of it, evidence-based practice, et cetera. See, I know, good gabbers, I know you want to get involved in this. You know, find, look up these websites, find Hawk. It is the grandfather of RPG Therapeutics. This is our guy. Hawk, thanks for joining us today. Just, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here.